Hi, and welcome to That Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And how are things going this week, Bo? Ah, things are going all right. Uh, working on a couple of, of big features uh, that are coming up. Uh, yeah, it's been a, been a busy week for us, actually. And tomorrow, we're getting internet installed at our home. So that'll be pretty awesome if it actually happens. That will be cool, yeah. Yeah. We have, we have, uh, we've not had broadband at our own place, like proper good broadband since maybe September when we moved out. <laughs> so it's been a long time coming. We're very much looking forward to it. And I just hope everything goes well tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, I don't know how we manage. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. It's, it's surprising how much it impacts like just little bits of your day when you keep, when your phone barely gets edge sometimes. And you're like checking your phone. It's like, oh, look, I, just, I got a text 20 minutes ago. Thanks for delivering it now. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess we're living in the country now, so we should just get used to it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So uh, I, I launched a feature uh, back end of last week. It was fairly big. Um, it took me a little bit longer than I wanted it to. Um, ultimately, because I ended up switching to and using a DynamoDB for the first time. Hmm. Um, DynamoDB is like a... a like an object or well well i don't know it's not it's a non-relational database um Mm -hmm. on aws and um uh, the feature is basically like a kind of like an activity feed for our users so they get to see essentially on one page all the things that they've been doing and Mm -hmm. what their friends have been doing as well and that kind of thing and um initially i was just sort of jamming a big json document into uh, redis uh which worked fine in on its own on its own, but once I rolled it out into production and everyone sort of all these activity feeds were generated, uh, it started to take up quite a lot of uh, storage space. Uh, so much so that uh, it filled our our Redis in instances. Uh, what do you, what co- do you mean by filled your Redis instances? Well, I mean, as in used up all the available RAM. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it started swapping. Well, mm-hmm. not swapping a lot, but swapping enough that it was annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're on. We're using Elastic Cache for our Redis instances now. Elastic Cache, while allowing you to use Redis, um, and does gives you persistence. You know, if Redis crashed, then it does. It has put it onto disk for you. Mm-hmm. That I think they don't expect that to last a reboot or something like that. Um, basically, they consider it still to be cache-like, so that you should be prepared to lose that data. Yeah. Uh, for example, most uh, so if you at least with EBS-backed EC2 instances, if you want to resize them, you can turn them off, increase the sort of what instance type to someone with more memory, more CPU, whatever, mm-hmm. and turn it back on again. It'll be just as it was. If you were to do that with a, a Redis cache instance, Elastic cache instance. As far as I know, you, your data would go. Um, mm. So scaling those up isn't too easy. Uh, it's not really been too much of a problem in the past because we've not had to this kind of data in there. Uh, most of it is just a, a bit of caching, a, a few bits of key values and sessions, basically. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I had to do a bit of thinking. Uh, I figured it would probably be easier to try and use something like DynamoDB than to mess about scaling the Redis things at the minute or even mm. adding another Redis cluster which would cost probably a lot more as well yeah uh, i was a real i was a little bit reluctant to introduce uh a new technology um i definitely didn't want to do anything like you know use mongo or something on a couple of ec2 instances 
but uh, DynamoDB was really easy. Uh, it was quite easily coded around to hide it away in a little repository type thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the nicest things was that they actually Amazon actually provide you a a fake version of DynamoDB uh, packaged as a jar file, and um, there was already a, a Docker image on Docker Hub that I could just pull down and effectively run a version of DynamoDB in my development environment for a testing environment. Nice. So yeah, it was really good, and it worked out quite nicely. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so this this feature, you actually want this data to be persistent, right? Yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be, mm-hmm. um, but it's quite a strain on the database to generate it the first time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we're doing is... We'd rather it was append only. Um, so as events are raised in the system, uh, they get appended to the activity feed for each user mm, rather than okay. having to generate it every time. Um, I think I mentioned this to you actually, is that every now and then I have these things where I think, oh, if we were doing event sourcing, uh, this would be really handy right now. Because um, mm. effectively, I've had to write this almost twice in a way. I've had to write the what effectively would be projectors in event source and CQRS for the when new events happen. So when new events happen, they get appended to an existing user's activity feed. Mm-hmm. But I've also got to cater for the case where uh, the user doesn't have an activity feed yet. Maybe it's the first time they've logged in since we launched the feature. Right. Now we could have made it so the feature launched to everybody with, you know, a day or two's activity rather than all of their activity, you know, f- since they joined the site. Right. But we didn't really want to do that. So the first time uh, we actually generate a feed from, like, historical data, so we query, uh, it's probably dozens of tables, I think. Uh, so I've essentially had to do that twice, in a way. Uh, whereas if I'd done event source in CQRS, I'd be effectively replaying a stream of events over the projectors I'd already written to do the any ongoing appending to the feed mm-hmm. right yeah um, that makes sense yep yeah yeah because you could you could either replay it from the beginning from that point on or you could just pick it up from where you started and just be fine yeah either way it'd have been mm-hmm. same code no real mm-hmm. uh difference yeah yeah i mean it- essentially eventually at some point everybody will have had their initial activity feed generated yeah and I wouldn't re I won't really need that implementation that generates historical feed from all the SQL tables mm-hmm. unless there's data loss and, we, right. and I need to regenerate the feeds. Yeah. So uh, if, if, if Redis had crashed, for example, you'd yeah. have to rebuild it from, from yeah. scratch. Okay. But well, I'm ma- you- by maintaining two different code bases to do that. One one code mm-hmm. base that's doing it the event sourcing way now mm-hmm. and one code base that's doing it by querying. Yeah. Whereas with event sourcing straight up, it would be just Once. all the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. But yeah, it's launched and it's working and it's performant, so happy days. Yeah. I just recently started using ElastiCache just for the Redis instance uh, for um, one of our features. It's We just kind of rolled it out for one feature. Um, so it's one of the, it's our, it was actually our very first integration with a, with a external API. And we just didn't want to have to hit the API every single time uh, since the data doesn't change that often. So uh, we, we deployed that 
but I, I've been trying to figure out what to do with some of our uh, temporary state stuff. Uh, we have a lot of key value pair, uh, key value store things that we're doing right now in uh, individual MySQL tables. So we have like 60 of these tiny little key value pair MySQL tables just because uh, when, 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 every, when every problem looks like a MySQL nail, because um, you only have a MySQL hammer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I've been trying to think of possibly pushing these to Redis, but it doesn't really fit that way very well. So maybe something like DynamoDB would be a better solution or one of the other uh, NoSQL stores that are better, better served as key value pair instances would be better. Uh, does, Dan, does DynamoDB have like collections of key value pairs or how does that work? No idea. No idea. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, there, there are list and map types. So mm-hmm. you could have a list of maps if you wanted to. Yeah. All right, let, me, let me rephrase it. Um, I know that, that Redis has a bunch of different types, but yep. there, there's effectively just one database that you're connected to. And some of some of the implementations, it would be easier just to assume that the database you're connected to is everything that you could clear that database and that would be fine. You could start over again. Uh, but if you have a, everything sharing that same key space, it becomes a problem. Okay. And uh, Redis, Redis uses database connection numbers, I think. So you can define how many connections and then you select the Redis database by number. Uh, but you have to specify in the, the Redis configs how many databases are available. Uh, and it would just be awful to actually try and say, you know, I have 32 of these little key value pairs where I want to be able to blow away all the keys in that database, but I'm selecting it, you know, number 17 is the one for, you know, our email insight thing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I get that. And uh, no, yeah. uh, DynamoDB is based on tables. So okay, essentially a table a database okay. would be yeah, a that's what I was wondering like I, I think whatever solution I end up going with is probably going to have to be something like that where it's like either a collection or a table where I can blow away that collection or that table and start over again but just yeah. for that and not worry about destroying the, the persistence data for the, everything else yeah so I've only learned, learned the very basics but it's schemaless except for defining keys and indexes so if you mm-hmm. want things to be indexed for sorting or whatever or yeah just getting by ID you need uh, to define those and then anything else you can just shove whatever you like in the, in one table. Okay. Nice. The The only time I've, I've really looked at it at DynamoDB too closely was when I was looking for Docker configuration tools. I think it was etcd. Um, one of their backends was DynamoDB and that looked like it might be kind of an interesting thing to try out. Yeah. Like but, I say, it's working okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the pricing is like, uh, and sort of if you start putting a lot of stuff in there, um, yeah, it's, it's priced. Uh, you're literally going to be paying per read, per write, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just a bit hard to know up front unless you're really clued in about this stuff. How much you're actually going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no auto scaling either, so you kind of need to be. Uh, there's no auto scaling built in. You can there are uh, there's an open source program out there that um literally runs on a server somewhere, monitors your usage and moves the provisioning up and down. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I think ours is, I think it's about $35 a month it's going to cost us at the minute. Hmm. Uh, I, I could probably actually 
figure that out for our system. Um, that's actually one of the things that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks was writing our event migration tools. Um, so I can actually export all of our event stream and import it back in after doing migrate uh, after doing uh, migrations on the actual exported event stream. But I can actually see how many things have happened. I, I think I could probably actually profile how much work it would be to rebuild our production system yeah. as is. Um, so that'd be an interesting thing for us to try, but I don't know if we really have the, the we don't really have the need to know that yet until, unless it looks like, you know, DynamoDB pricing is really going to be very expensive. So probably wouldn't be a bad idea to have an idea how much it might cost us. Yeah. I mean, um, we're obviously doing quite a lot of writes, quite mm -hmm. write heavy because uh, it's got to add every time something happens to somebody, yeah. it adds it to the feed. Uh, and not just their feed, but other people's feed as well, depending on who's following who and so on yeah. and so forth. But yeah, it's working okay. So cool. Nice. Well, that sounds exciting. I think you showed me the, uh, the, the graph of the usage after the first implementation was deployed. That was the that was the database, yeah. So, yeah. so that's still running. That code is still there, um, but that was effectively. Now the problem I had with that was I was doing it. It was all the so that's the code that generates the initial feed for every user, mm -hmm. and it's, you know as soon as they log they log in, it's gonna it sends off a background task, a background worker to to go and generate the feed for them just in case they do come stumble across the new feature, mm -hmm. and they. In itself was fine, but um, I was sending the, the background job over the regular queue, um, and we have anywhere between, I think, 20 and 30 processes working on that queue at once. So when all 20 or 30 of those processes picked up one of these jobs that was very database-intensive, it just killed the, mm. the database server CPU. I mean, it didn't kill it. It mm -hmm. carried on chugging away, but... It pinned the uh, the CPU at about hundred percent. Yeah, uh, and that was actually once I realised what I'd done, uh, that was quite easily solved. I just put it onto what we call we have a low priority queue, mm -hmm. uh, which is expected to get backlogged essentially because there's only one or two workers. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so that was sorted easily easily enough. So when you maintain your queues, you you have like explicitly defined this is the slow queue, this is the fast queue, and all of the jobs either go to the slow or the fast queue. Yes, um, mostly because I use it uh, a lot of the time. I'm using it in the the CQRS sense that you would be in that you know you you use an interface is effectively issuing commands to the application to be carried out. Mm -hmm. But I also use it for batch jobs and general background processing. So perhaps there's a, a ten o'clock on a Tuesday. We're going to send out an email to this subset of members. And there could mm -hmm. be three thousand of those. I usually code things like that so that the each individual email is its own uh, job background job. And if you queue up three thousand of those, um, if that went into the normal queue, you're effectively potential potentially uh, slowing down the other jobs that are actually more real time type things. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it does. So I don't want to clog up the queue with 3,000 emails that could actually go out over the next couple of hours. So things like that tend to go into a low-priority queue 
which gets slowly worked on, whereas the other stuff is more for this stuff needs doing quickly. Do you have any dedicated queues for specific pipelines? No. Uh, only the one, um, well, a couple, but they're just based on Amazon's own infrastructure stuff rather than our own stuff. Okay. So there's a queue that receives um, notifications of bounces and uh, abuse reports for emails we send out, mm, that okay. kind of thing. Is that all hooked up through SES? just sends you topic notification sort of things? Yes. Uh, so okay. SES sends it to SNS. Mm-hmm. And then SNS forwards that onto SQS so that I can uh, work through them all and take appropriate action. Okay. We usually kind of like put a suspension on someone's account if their email bounces or if they report us as spam. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It it doesn't uh, prevent them from using the site completely. It just kind of uh, stops any more email going to them. So we're not, you know, doing it more yeah. and more. Mm-hmm. And then throws up a warning when they log in um kind of saying please don't if it was a sp- if they if they marked as a spam it says please don't do that again go to the privacy settings and mm-hmm. change your email preferences uh and if it was a bounce then we just let them know and carry on hmm. okay cool yeah there, there's tons of stuff on the aws infrastructure that we haven't really touched yet yeah I, but i know that you had all did did you set that up or was that part of the stuff that the other consultant did when he set up all the other AWS things for you? Uh, no, I had that running already. We were already using SES before we moved. Because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, previous to using SES, we, we just had a sort of a dedicated mail server that we had to uh, maintain ourselves and maintain mm-hmm. the reputation of. Um, mm-hmm. But I was glad to move to SES uh, just because the volume of emails we send out. So I'm trying to improve the deliverability as much as possible. Um, yeah. It's kind of a big deal, so. We're sending everything through SES right now, but everything isn't a lot. We still have a very small number of emails that actually get delivered, but it is something that I know we have to address at some point. And I've only I've only sort of scratched the surface of understanding how much Amazon stuff can talk to everything else. And it looks like it, it uses the, uh, the SNS stuff quite a bit to be able to deliver messages to anybody who's listening. So it'll be kind yeah. of interesting to start looking at that at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's how things like our... And that CloudWatch thing was nice, I think, uh, for us. So we have CloudWatch set up to monitor things, so it can you can tell it to monitor the CPU of your uh, web servers. And if it goes, you can set alarms, so things trigger if uh, certain metrics mm-hmm. go above, below, whatever it might be. Um, and we have those emailers, so we get an email, but also it publishes something. So no, sorry, is that? Yeah, it publishes to SNS, and then SNS does two things. It One thing, it emails us uh, those notifications, and then it also pings them off to a Lambda uh, mm. thing. I don't even know what you call them. A Lambda yeah, Lambda. It's a Lambda Lambda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which mm, sort of in, takes a look at the notification to see what it is, and if it thinks it's relevant, it sends it off to our Slack uh, channel as well. Hmm. Uh, so it's kind of nice in in that respect, I think. Yeah, we're well, using quite a lot of the Amazon services now, but there's there's new ones in there all the time that I don't even recognize. I saw the database migration service today, <laughs> uh, which I've not even seen before, but that looks kind of cool. Because um, uh, I think moving to a Amazon's uh, Aurora sort of database would be quite interesting at some point. 
because mm-hmm. uh, running RDS is quite expensive, especially for us. We have quite a big, quite a large instance, and using the replication and the failover, sorry, you know, it's mm-hmm. a multi-region failover. You know, it, it's not cheap. I mean, it's it's not a massive deal, but it, it's, it'd be cheaper to run on Amazon's uh, Aurora service, however that works. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's something for another day. I'm not going to look into it now. Yeah. So how about you? What have you been up to? Um, well, I, I spent a lot of time working on event migration. And that's something that I think, I, I think you mentioned once that you didn't think that that was something that would happen all the time in the future. Um. I was under the impression, I, I, my feeling is it's at some point the return on investment for um, migrating the event stream is going to diminish and your event stream is going to get larger mm-hmm. and migrating it might be more precarious than incurring technical debt in the form of adapters or yeah, transformations in your projectors or version projectors, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I, it's not something I've been and done before, so I wasn't yeah. sure. But. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. That at a certain point, it will be better to just code around it. Um, the problems that we ran into were along the lines of classes going away, so that events the the event stream was set up to always deserialize the classes. <laughs> so if it if we played back events that no longer had those classes in the code, things would die. Um, which we could just code around that. But in some cases, those classes had actually moved um, from one namespace to another, which, you know, the class was still there technically and didn't really change in structure. But, you know, we just wanted to say that, well, this is actually now over here. Uh, yeah, and they, they, there were there were a couple of things that we did to to basically avoid those. Like, it, if if we seriously cannot deserialize the class anymore, then we just skip it. Uh, but oftentimes, that that might have actually been useful data that we needed. So, at a certain point, we're probably going to have to do more like the inline translation. I think I think that's kind of what you were getting at. That as the event comes out, rewrite it to change the class name, or to change the change the name so that it can be deserialized correctly. Yeah. Um, so we don't have that in the infrastructure yet, and we we made so we're starting to make some big changes to some of our models that we sort of kind of skipped on modeling completely when we first started, and realizing that you know certain things need to be modeled very differently than they were. Uh, in in this particular case, the uh, one of our we had two aggregate roots, and one of them needed to be a child entity of the other aggregate root. Which that that was actually pretty messy, and I I don't know how you would have recovered from that without actually rewriting the events to be in the other aggr- in the other aggregate roots event stream. It just wouldn't have worked otherwise. Um, but yeah, I, I I hope that we can avoid that in the future by better modeling things. And considering how many models we actually have right now, the fact that we've only had to do anything major like that once in the last seven months, I think, is a win. <laughs> For us, um, everything yeah. else has been pretty, pretty minor. But we're we're also only you know three months in from actually having any live users in the system, so we haven't had to worry about breaking changes that much up until about three months ago. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, the more people get on the system, the more uptime is important. You know, mm-hmm. 
and uh, the more data you have to work on migrate with it's more and more difficult uh, it's no different from other databases i guess um mm-hmm. you know i mean i do it uh, there have been times when i would have to write a database migration that would change the structure of a very large table um and i didn't want to do it because mm-hmm. it would require writing complex migrations you know doing some real funky stuff if you want to, if you have to do it live you know yeah um and i've done it by instead i've probably added another table when i'd rather it was one table if that makes sense yeah because you can quite easily add another table to my sequel and then you code just pick up that table when it once it's there yeah rather than you know once you've got a few million rows in a well probably more than a few million mm-hmm. but you know what i mean um yeah adding an index to a table i know that's that's not difficult anymore i don't think yeah, mm. I, I think that I think that the the idea of the event stream is very different because it, it you can't just add another table. Yeah, you know you're adding oh, yeah. a, you have to add another event that happened at the same time as another one that was in the system six months ago. So it's it 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 is it it is a similar problem, but it's also a very different one. I think. Yeah, but it, I'm I'm saying that they both generate problems. Yeah, uh, the more mm-hmm. more you use it. Or well, the longer you have used it, the more difficult it's going to be to run those migrations, I think. Yeah. I and think at some so point, too. the return of investment of writing the migration, running the migration, including carrying downtime or whatever, mm-hmm. will probably outweigh starting to do things like those translations you just mm-hmm. mentioned or yep. coding around, even if it's extending a class, you know, mm-hmm. like Symphony would, you know, have the deprecated classes in the yep. old place where they used to be. Mm-hmm. Extending the new class and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, we've run it. We've we've run into some interesting things where originally a value was a string value, and we decided that that needed to be an object later, even if it was just an object ID. Now we have to go back and imbue an object ID <laughs> on that event because it's it wouldn't know what it is otherwise. It has no way to know. Mm. That you know, before it was a string called that had the string value one off, that needs to now relate to a unique UID UUID for that particular organization that wasn't even a concept before. Like it didn't have any idea that there'd literally be nothing we could do with that event to yeah give it that information after the fact. So yeah, it's it's it is something that I think as a team we're gonna have to get better at figuring out how do you. Uh, future-proof some of these things so that we don't have to, to go in these uh, horrible migrations that much longer. <laughs> yeah. Or at I, least that often. I mean, uh, I suppose I suppose if uh, if they didn't affect any projectors, it might be easier mm-hmm. because you could actually just migrate in place rather than taking the whole event stream out, migrating it, and then replaying the whole event stream. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you could literally go in and update individual events as they as they are yeah i think that's probably like one of the next things that we'll have to do is write some infrastructure to say as these events come out if it is of this type pass it through here first and then push whatever came off of it onto the event stream that is being published yeah um so that that would be a little easier and i think what we could do then is write several of those like as as they come out and when we have 30 of them 
and realize that 30% of every time we rebuild a projection or every time we rebuild a read model is going through these translations, then we sit down and say, is this going to be worth writing a migration for to fix all of these? Yeah. I mean, and the other thing is, actually, I guess it's it probably is generally, it's just generally something to try and avoid, isn't it? Um, because and the whole point is that this event stream is essentially read history only. and it's yep. supposed to be read only. So mm-hmm. it should, I guess it should be a last resort. Um, mm-hmm. But, which is another thing I'm sort of playing to in that the longer things go on, I think the less likely you'll want to be doing that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah definitely. But you're still saying agile and flexible now, so you may as well mm-hmm. crack on doing it. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's something that we need to do now because, at least right now, our model is probably going to change more than it will in the future. And right now, this was faster than trying to code around it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that, that was part of what I've been doing. Uh, the other thing that we've been working on probably for the last two and a half weeks, but really been coding on it since last Monday, is uh, integrating with Context.io. Have you seen Context.io? Uh, nope. Go on. Enlighten me. Yeah, Context.io um, is sort of a middleman that connects p- to people's inboxes. So uh, it gives us the ability to say, uh, you have an account, uh, you've registered, your account has, uh, you know, Dave at that thatpodcast.io. Uh, you'd be able to click to connect my mailbox and it would take you off to Context.io who would set up the whole OAuth2 dance with Gmail or Google Apps or whatever. You know, if it's a normal IMAP account, it would be able to detect that too. Um, it would then start uh, subscribing to all of your messages in your inbox. And as it gets messages, it would ping us to let us know that those messages are available and then we can access them. Um, so... It's it's going to let us get access to people's inboxes without having to write all the complicated IMAP code and the complicated OAuth code. So it's really going to give us a, a pretty big head start. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, and the the idea is that if, say, you and I are both uh, on that podcast organization on money and uh, we have a, say, I don't know, uh, DevHell. Let's say DevHell is maybe going to do um, some uh, marketing with us or whatever, and we're going to you know buy something from them. They're going to buy something from us. And Chris sends us an email, and he sends and Chris sends me an email. Um, if my email is hooked to his contact, or if, if my email is hooked to my account, and we have a contact with Chris's email, then it will actually show up in Chris's contact. So if if I look at Chris's contact, you'll see it. I'll see it uh, because that email was was associated. Yeah. Uh, gets complicated because we have uh it gets complicated with the model because we have two people who potentially should be able to see it or maybe not so you and i both have to have different access uh, because the email came to me so we wanted to make it be such that i can now choose do i want to attach it to chris's contact publicly do i want to attach it to his contact privately so only i see it um, or do we? Or do I not want it to be on his account at all, or in his contact at all? Um, which is which is all fine and good. But then, if you were also cc'd on the message, then we get the same. You get the same options. So if I mark it private, you should still be able to see it, really, because email came to you. <laughs> anyway, so we started we started going down these really interesting permission problems and permiss- you know, allowing. Uh, users to have full control over what gets shown and when. Um, 
the other the other part of it is that it's a multi-tenant so i might actually have bo at dflydev.com associated with dflydev and ninja girl organization and money organization so if i get an email from from beck to me at bo dflydev.com ollie could then go and create a beck in in money.com and because i received that email he could now see the emails between Beck and I. <laughs> okay. Because it would automatically go to money.com. So we had to, we had to come up with all sorts of rules and restrictions and, and ways to, to ensure that the emails that come to me, I get to choose where they go. If they come yeah. to more than one person, then um, we both get to choose. But it sort of trumps. So if I choose public and then you come along and say, no, 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 I want this to be private, then it becomes private for both of us. I can still see it because it came to me. But, you know, the third person in the organization won't be able to see it anymore yeah. because, because they never received that email. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a really uh, fun problem to try and solve and model around that. We're getting actually pretty close to having the, the, the final read model in place that will allow us to actually start building the UI around it. Hmm. Uh, so. Yeah. I mean, that sounds very familiar. Um, a lot of my first job was in uh, document management. Mm-hmm. And we did that basically. Um, we hooked into IMAP server and we emails could be registered to a project. Mm-hmm. You could choose to register them privately, in which case only people who had been sent it could see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, um, the only thing, I mean, we did exactly as you described, basically. Uh, the first It was the first person past the post uh, to register it to a project, got to make those kind of decisions about it being private. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a few things that we did um, it'd probably be on the scope for you because you're building a CRM rather than a document management system but things like um, the whole point of a lot of the system was openness and transparency so this was a, a system that we actually it was a construction company and they actually shared it with their clients so that the clients could actually come into the project and see what was going on Mm-hmm. what was happening, all the day-to-day stuff. Uh, so there's actually people who who audited what was made private, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's to do with a project, ultimately somebody at the top of that project should be able to see everything, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a personal issue, then, then it shouldn't be registered to the project. It should be registered and so on and so forth, that kind of thing anyway. Yeah, so. yeah that's, a, that's actually one of the things that we're discussing now is having the the ability to on a deal share certain parts of the deal with the actual customer uh, without sharing too much because you know there's some things that you don't want to share with them if there's you know communication going back and forth Um, so we haven't really solved that problem yet but it's something we're starting to look at is okay now we have the ability to share this information with the user like it say someone pulls a price list to a deal we want to share that price list with the, the, the consumer on the other end of it. You know, yep. We should be able to do that. Um, but it's a slippery slope as to, well, let's just give them all the information about the deal. But you, know, you don't really want to do that. So. No, you don't want to do that. Yep. So yeah, well, it's, it's something that we're going to have to take a look at eventually. Probably not to the level that you're, you're talking, but it's, some of that sounds very familiar to yep. some of the problems that we're looking at. Cool. Well, I think we're at 35 minutes now. Yeah, we around. should uh, should call so, it quits. Yeah, I I I'm still at the office. This is the 
third or fourth time I've recorded from the money offices. And if my broadband install goes well tomorrow, it'll be hopefully one of the last times. <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. You wouldn't have to be journeying home after uh, after yeah. recording. After hours. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. All right. Yeah. I guess we'll call this one a wrap. You've been listening to that podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox like the music you can thank gorillo for allowing us to sample the track dust kingdom for our intro and outro you can find dust kingdom and other tracks by gorillo at grillo.bandcamp.com spelled g-r-i-l-l-o 